Peter Bartu, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, this is a great honor. I'm not going to waste any time and go straight to the point of our interview. Qatar has been blockaded, more or less, by a coalition of countries led by Saudi Arabia. And um, relations between Qatar and Saudi Arabia have been very difficult this past 20 years or so. But this is uh, unprecedented. So, uh, Peter, what do you think the main sources of, of contention between these two countries are? And what do you think Saudi Arabia is trying to achieve with this uh, blockade? Well, it's my pleasure, firstly, to join you here today and to talk about this interesting topic. It certainly is an unprecedented moment uh, in the history of the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, of which Saudi and, and Qatar are key members. But you're right, there is a, there is a deeper history uh, to the current uh, situation they confront. Uh, it goes back, I guess, to the mid-1990s when uh, Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa Al Thani took over or took power in Qatar with the bloodless coup in 1995 against his father while his father was on holiday in Switzerland. Um, Sheikh Hamad is widely seen, Al Thani is widely seen as being the sort of father of modern Qatar. Remember, it's a very young country. It only achieved independence from the United Kingdom at the end of the 1960s. So it's a young country, but it, through this bloodless coup in 1995, the Saudis were upset, uh, as were the United Arab Emirates, that the succession in the Qatari royal family had happened in that manner. The Saudis supported a rival faction within the Tani family to try and replace Sheikh Hamad uh, in 1996. So this was seen as, 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 you know, this is historical and personal and it's contemporary and questions of succession and who should take uh, power are very, very important in, in the various constellations of different family groups within each state and so forth. But in, in, in the meantime, after the 1990s, when Sheikh Hamad both defeats his father, takes power, is able to fend off the challenge from, from uh, a rival branch of the family, he then, particularly through um, the late 1990s and then into the t early 2000s, really seeks to place Qatar in an influential role in the region. And it's able to do this because of its vast oil and particularly gas reserves. Um, and it, it laid the kind of institutional basis through a new constitution in Qatar in early 2003 which uh, identified Qatar as, uh, you know, a, a within the constitution as a country of influence in the region that needed to have a a, a key role in in shaping the environment. Its 2003 constitution actually has provision or describes Qatar as a regional mediator, which is quite an interesting, uh, you know, constitutional provision, and it's unusual that, that you see this in other... It's, it's in the Constitution of Qatar that they are a regional re mediator. Mediator, that's right. So huh. it, 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 it gave itself this, this sort of role of uh, being able to intervene or, or provide advice uh, to uh, all players in the region. And I think initially it was done with the best of intentions. Right. This, this, of course, is happening while in parallel you have the establishment of Al Jazeera in 1996, which also uh, drawing on, on um, you know, experienced BBC staff and others did create a minor revolution in the region by bringing fresh news and, and quite ambitious and unbiased programming, at least initially as well. Yeah. So 
Qatar is suddenly looking to be a, you know, a country of the future. But as Egypt and, and the Syrians and the Iraqis and these other centers of Arab uh, culture and, and, and political power start to diminish, um, the way is open for, for Qatar uh, to emerge and, and come forward. So but this was, this was recognized uh, apart from sort of the occasional open dispute about uh, particularly Al Jazeera programming and coverage of events in Saudi and elsewhere. This growing strength in Qatar is, is kind of just acknowledged and dealt with and not wasn't seen as that threatening uh, really to the Saudis or, or the UAE either. However, all of this changes, of course, with the Arab Spring in uh, late 2010 and 2011 where Qatar was seen as, as having moved perhaps from being uh, in a mediating role, talking to all parties, to being more of an active interferer by providing more support perhaps to political parties that grew out of the Islamic social movement, the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. So, and Qatar did this, I think, on the basis for two reasons. One was that they, they saw that um, these parties were the most organised and they would provide the basis for which Qatar could actually gain most by openly supporting them. Would, would Qatar would gain most influence in shaping the region uh, moving forward. And well, it, it, worked this, in, it worked in Egypt because, well, originally the, the Muslim Brotherhood was, was actually elected in, in a somewhat democratic election. Yes. Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it uh, this provides um, the... If we can think of Qatar's, you know, emergence through the 2000s and then its, 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 its sort of arc of influence, I would say that after the election of Morsi in Egypt, this Muslim Brotherhood government, um, we see the sort of zenith or the, the moment of triumph for Qatar is, is in 2013 right. when it, it, it seems that it can influence everything in the region. And, of course, the, the reaction from the Saudis and the Emirates finally is one of alarm. And so they actually helped support the coup in Egypt in 2013 to bring down the government of Morsi, replace it with General Sisi's government. And this is also when we see the first open uh, challenge to the Qataris because it's in 2013 that the Saudis and the Emirates finally publicly tell the government of Qatar to stop being so proactive. And in fact, they withdraw their ambassadors uh, from Qatar at this moment uh, also. We see a very interesting convergence. They've done that a few times in the past 15 years, as a matter of fact. Withdrawing their ambassadors from Qatar and then back in and then back out. It's been um, a tumultuous relationship. Indeed. And many allegations have been made about the Qataris supporting intelligence, uh, terrorist groups and so on and so forth. And, and these issues have been negotiated 2013, 2014 in particular. And that comes down to three things for all the different accusations. The, the first is that the Saudis and the Emirates do not want Qatar to have an independent foreign policy. They have to take decisions uh, consensus manner under the arrangements of the Gulf Cooperation Council. Secondly, the Qataris are not to support the Muslim Brotherhood or any other Islamic movements in, who take part in election politics. 
And then thirdly, the coverage by Al Jazeera, particularly in, in, in its Arabic uh, content, has to be less favourable to the Muslim Brotherhood and less uh, critical of what Saudi Arabia is doing and what the United Arab Emirates is doing. So, so those three things you, are, are very important. You, 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 um, are, you are actually listing some of the demands. There's a 13-point demands correct. that was forwarded to the state of Qatar by the Saudi-led coalition, which is the, the GCC uh, countries plus Egypt. And yeah. all, the, all, all those demands are, um, I mean, there's, there's quite a few more, like severing relations with Iran. Um, they, they look very irrealistic. Correct. So, so most of them are unrealistic. But the, the, as I said, my view is that the, the, the three most important ones, and these are the ones which, which the Qataris will have to meet in some way. They said no, is, really, I think. They said yeah, well, they've been, they've been, they've, it, it's, it's, uh, the blockade continues and they haven't been able to, uh, resolve the crisis despite mediation by, the United States, the Kuwaitis, and then the Europeans and others. So that's very interesting that it's continued. But bottom line is no independent foreign policy, no support to the Muslim Brotherhood, and wind back uh, coverage by Al Jazeera. The, in my view, Qatar will have to move on these in some way if it's to be welcomed back by the Saudis and the Emirates and vice versa, the Saudis and the Emirates will have to work out a formula to where they can both climb down from their pole, as it were. But but these these are these are the big three, right. and, they're, and they're very serious. But like like you say, a lot of the accusations are uh, non-negotiable or, or or very difficult to to actually embrace in a in a serious way. Oh, so, yeah. do, do you think Saudi? Ooh, we're hearing some noise in the background. So, okay, um, do you think Saudi Arabia is putting? enough pressure on Qatar so it, it actually um, co concedes a few of these demands. And, and, and second question within my question, how long do you think this blockade can last? What, what exactly Saudi Arabia is trying to achieve here? Because also there's a, there's a sort of clock ticking, which is the 2022 World Cup hosted by Qatar, which will be the official arrival of Qatar on the world stage. So um, they started the blockade four years before the World Cup, which is a little bit odd. Maybe, maybe there was some... The, 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 the Trump's visit to Saudi Arabia recently maybe was um, the reason why they, they, they started the blockade. Who, who knows? But what, what do you think Saudi Arabia is trying to achieve and how long that blockade can last? Uh, very good. Um, so... I, I'm not sure they, they were inserted the blockade in the context of the World Cup in 2022, but uh, right. they had a few other reasons. Um, it's um, the the first thing is is the the most important variable here. I think is that you did have that transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, and, and the this coincided with the changes where uh, you had the succession in Saudi after. January 2015, with the passing of Abdullah bin Abdulaziz, being replaced by King Salman, and what what essentially has happened in Saudi over the last two years, leading up to the blockade against Qatar in June, is this transition by which uh, Mohammed bin Salman is effectively been and is now legally the uh, crown prince. So he will succeed uh, his father 
King Salman. It may happen very, very shortly. And this very young man at the age of 32, 33 could become king of Saudi Arabia right. for many, many decades to come. So, so, so and it's a very good point because we see that, that when we look at the internal dynamics in Saudi, the, there's a clear, um, this, the, the, this King Salman and Mohammed bin Salman clearly used the moment of, uh, Trump's visit to Saudi in May to, um, enlist US support for their vision of a region, uh, which they see the Saudi, Saudis play, and the Emirates playing uh, a key role in, you know, what shape it will take and so forth. And they, they initially, and it, it, it's, there are gaps within the different institutions within the United States as to how to respond to the blockade that is in place in June after Trump's visit. So Rex Tillerson, who's the US uh, State Department uh, chief, formerly of ExxonMobil, has spent 10 years visiting Qatar, knows the family very well. Uh, ExxonMobil helped turn Qatar into the gas giant that it is. Um, and the State Department is, in a way, caught off guard with the blockade, uh, responds quite angrily to, in, in, in public, you know, Saudis, what are you doing? Uh, and the same remarks come from the Pentagon and, and other parts of uh, the US, you know, separate to the White House, as you know, that's a different institution. So, you know, it's not very clear that the US was actually aware of what would unfold. And the US also had, you know, lots of interests in Qatar. Qatar hosts the largest US military base, and, and uh, this provides a degree of protection for the Qataris. But, but all of this is to say, you know, to come back to your question of what is it that the Saudis were hoping to achieve through this blockade? Well, what we know for sure is that they want Qatar to be less independent. They want them to stop supporting the Muslim Brotherhood. They want them to uh, curb Al Jazeera. But then the question was, was the blockade the right way to try and achieve all of these objectives? Um, the blockade has put, pushed Qatar into uh, closer relationships with Iran yes. and, Tur- and Turkey. Um, it was, supposed, a, it was a, supposed to do the opposite, actually. If you Indeed, yes. indeed. It couldn't actually be that Qatar emerges from this uh, in a stronger position at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, we still have some – it's still too early to call, but uh, so far so good. And right. the, the, the question is what do the Saudis do next? Well, what can they do? What can they do? There's not much else they can do. The next step would be a military intervention. I mean, they they don't have that much leverage. They shut down borders. Um, Mm -hmm. They removed their diplomatic relations with with Qatar. Um, They they have the rest of the GCC countries with them. But that doesn't seem to affect Qatar's economy that much, which is apparently still growing. Um, Qatar's clients in terms of you know, gas production, are um, uh, India, um, Korea, Japan. They have nothing to do with the GCC countries. Um, OP- OPEC cannot stop Qatar from producing gas. What else, what else can happen? Um, Very good. Yeah, no, that, that's, uh, I, I agree with you. That there's, uh, there was an indication that... Um, 
there were there was a possibility of military intervention by the Saudis and the Emirates. That this was indeed talked about uh, in wow. May this year. Seriously, uh, we, we 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 understand this to be the case from leaked uh, emails uh, and so forth. Um, we is, know that uh, serious. we know that this is very serious. It yeah. was very serious. Yeah. Um, we know that there was uh, and has been an effort, particularly by the UAE to sponsor a rival branch of the Altani family mm. in the UK to prepare them to potentially replace Sheikh Tamim. But uh, the the realities of both military intervention, that's off the table, not just because of the American presence in Qatar, but because the Turkey has also increased its military presence. Well, that's one of the, of the points of the, the, the demands. The, the GCC are asking Qatar to stop the building of the Turkish air base, which is being built as we speak. Right. And doesn't look like that's going to happen either. Well, as you know, one, one of the interesting aspects of most of the governing regimes in the Gulf is that they, is the extent to which they rely on external patrons for their own support because right. of the degree of, you know, relative distrust between them all, uh, particularly in, in this, in this moment. Um, but yeah, no, 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 Qatar seems to have survived. And, and, uh, The, this would seem, I mean, if, if this continues, then one could well see the consolidation of a, you know, Turkey, Qatar, uh, Iran, and perhaps even Russian, you know, configuration, um, of influence in the region, which is, uh, I don't think what the Saudis were intending. Right. So, but let's let's just come back to this question of what what were the Saudis really up to, and what were they trying to achieve here? Well, this is just one action of a number of what seems to have been poorly thought through foreign policy decisions. Right. The inv invasion of Yemen and yeah. the brutal uh, bombardment and blockade there has achieved nothing. The uh, earlier. Uh, um, The detention of Prime Minister Saad Hariri from Lebanon in Riyadh seems to have uh, backfired on the Saudis also. Right. Mohammed bin Salman is trying to take his uh, country into a, you know, an economic diversification program which has both social ramifications and, 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 and very important economic uh, ramifications. So they're vulnerable, essentially. So it's... Uh, Yeah, the the Saudi Saudi position uh, is is difficult, in, interesting, difficult at this end. Interesting, yeah, absolutely. I mean, also during the Arab Spring, let's not forget, and that was kind of shunned by the the, the Saudi and and the media in general. Um, within the GCC countries, there was a lot of turmoil. Bahrain went through a very difficult time. And, and, and oppressed the, the democracy. There Absolutely. was, there was a portion of democracy going on, going on in Bahrain. And that was completely massacred by the, the regime. Saudi Arabia also went through some very, very difficult time through that, um, Arab Spring. And there are very big forces inside, um, positive liberal forces inside Saudi Arabia and, It's still a very um, tough, absolute monarchy. So Qatar has been perceived as a troublemaker for these uh, nations. 
and maybe they are considered as almost a model threat now by their cousins, uh, Saudis, if I may say. Sure. So. Yeah, no, no. I, th- I, think, I think it's really important not to underestimate the extent of the, the challenges that the region is facing. My own views are that from the Arab Spring 2011 until now, everything is connected. Um, so, so the blockade on, 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 on Qatar, the demands by Saudi and the Emirates and Egypt about supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, about supporting political transitions, these go to the heart of their frailties. That is the Saudi and Emirate uh, frailties of where they feel vulnerable. They feel vulnerable to uh, election politics where their, where their authority will be challenged and they'll be, they'll be replaced and, and so forth. These, these are real fears. Right. Um, altogether, these challenges, in my view, and let's not forget ISIS and, and all the rest of it that have emerged uh, in this period, is the you know the, the biggest regional challenge since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. So that's the significance of it. Um, it's a one in a hundred years political shock that each of these countries and their patrons and clients uh, are all trying to make sense of. Um, with a very, you know, view, a straightforward view of regime preservation and stability. So this has led to some of these extraordinary, um, as I said, you know, perhaps poorly thought out decisions that, that where the expectation, um, you know, cannot meet, cannot be met by, by the course that's chosen. So, you know, this blockade on Qatar, the war in Yemen, the kidnapping of the, or the detention of, mm the Prime Minister of Lebanon. So, you know, it, it, is, it is that serious. All of it's very serious. And, and it's, you know, let's bear in mind that um, we have the situation of the almost complete defeat of ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Uh, this was a, an emerging reality uh, throughout 2017. And that some of the, the uh, moves that are being made now, particularly by the Saudis and the Emirates, are about how to reshape the Middle East Right. In a post-ISIS world that will uh, forestall any further challenges like new Arab Spring-type uprisings moving forward. And in this context, uh, they see that Qatar has to be brought into line. Okay. Um, so in, a, um, in an article in Open Democracy um, in April, you, you said that not since the, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, uh, there's such, uh, been such a reordering of the Middle East. And, and this is what you, you seem to say again. Um, yes. H- how much do you think this is due to the decline of the U.S. influence in the Middle East? Is there, first of all, a declining influence of the U.S. in the Middle East, which would create a, a sort of vacuum of power, and which is why everything now is, is happening the way it's happening? Look, wonderful question. Um, is American power declining in real terms? Um, probably not in terms of, you know, military strength, weapon systems. Definitely not. On, Definitely not. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So, but I, th- I think what has been revealed since the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and until now essentially is the limitations of military power. What has been revealed are the limitations of military power. So it doesn't matter how much power you have. At some point, diplomacy um, is about 
shared values, about both cooperation and sometimes coercion mm-hmm. in bringing people around your ideas and your vision and so on. So what has been absent from the United States but also from anybody else uh, in the last decade has been this question of what is the vision for the region? What will be its uh, the nature of government? What will be the economic relationships? What will be the cultural uh, manifestations of this region? Right. What we've got, what we've got, essentially, in the Arab Spring is part of this, uh, and and the conflict between the Saudis and Qatar also is a contest over what is the regional vision, and and in this we have a number of complicated players, of course, you know, Iran as civilization, Turkey, which sees itself in similar uh, epochal epochal terms, mm. um, all jousting. Will will there, will it be a um, region that it, that allows Islamic parties in government. Well, for Turkey and Qatar, and that's yes. For the Saudis and Egypt and hmm. the Emirates, that's no. Um, economically, what will be the nature of the relationships? You know, as a region, it has the least interconnectedness economically than any other part of uh, the globe. Actually, um, anyway. So, so there's a civilizational struggle going on here that um, is being determined first and foremost by the regional players themselves and, and because these are questions which can't really be answered by the United States or the, or, or, or France or, or the UK or elsewhere for that matter so we're in the middle we're in the middle of this uh, you know discussion the conflict built around it so in my view, there's another five years of this to play out. Mm. Um, what, you know, what happens in Syria, what happens in Yemen, what happens in Somalia and the, and the Horn of Africa and, and, and the, the impact of the US to, you know, really shift this or, or, or and hasten up that dialogue is, is quite limited. The US has three main, you know, interests in the region. One is uh, Israel security. The second is uh, the security of the energy markets, and thirdly, is the question of security, which is very broadly defined as you know the war on terror, and, and it uh, beyond those three broad national interests, the U.S. Uh, has very little, I would argue, um, stomach or interest in actually going much deeper. And it's not clear to me, in fact, whether they currently have the expertise to be, you know, more deeply involved. And what what becomes an interesting corollary to your question of, well, you know, has US power receded? Um, it's certainly become a lot less visible. And what we have seen is that, you know, other countries are now playing more important roles. And at present, it's, it's really Russia. Uh, that's the only player that, it, that can talk politics and deal economically with all of the major players. So Russia's relationship with Iran is tight. Russia's relationship with Qatar is good. Russia's relationship with the Saudis is excellent. And, of course, they're the major uh, determinant of uh, or guarantor of what uh, political and security configuration will emerge in Syria once the fighting stops there. So... 
um, and we've seen Lavrov and Putin and, 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 and all streams of the Russian government uh, play a weak hand very strongly and, and uh, use diplomacy very, very well. You know, in, in a very professional um, manner. It's superb statecraft, whether you agree or disagree right. with what they've done, and, and uh, really superb. And it makes makes the rest of the world, including the Americans, look like amateurs, frankly. Right. So in, in, instead of of a decline of, of the U.S. power or influence, perhaps it's a decline of, of hard power versus soft power. Interesting. Um, Good. And, I like that. And... Um, if it is, then it, it, it's looking pretty good for Qatar because they're really, really, really good at soft power so far. They, they, they've, they've shown a remarkable understanding of the Western media, how the, the, the Western world works in terms of images and ideas and propagandas and all that stuff. And they're playing their cards. It, it seems that they're playing their cards really well. We're coming to the end of our interview, I think. But um, the, the international community and the main clients of, of Saudi Arabia and Qatar in terms of energy really do not have any interest in this crisis to, um, to keep escalating and, and that it turns into a real conflict. So probably Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the GCC country are under a lot of pressure from the major powers um, to find a, a way to resolve their diplomatic crisis. Do, would you Absolutely. Agree? I mean, I mean, you know, the, the uh, I, I completely agree with you. Um, and, and, and the, you know, the whole, ener the way the energy, the oil and gas markets work is that they're, they're remarkably resilient, robust and consistent. They are. So, I mean, just to give you a quick, a quick example. So when, when, um, You know, Russia went uh, into Syria uh, in dramatic fashion in September 2015. Uh, very shortly in November, the Turkish Air Force shot down a Russian plane, yeah. uh, which looked like a uh, major conflict was about to erupt between Turkey and Russia. And indeed, uh, aspects of the relationship were severely constrained. But all throughout the crisis, the, you know, the energy relationship never altered between Russia and uh, Turkey. And uh, back to this Russian sort of idea of uh, talking to all the parties and continuing their, their um, economic and political relationships. Um, king Salman from Saudi was the first uh, royal king to visit Moscow ever. In, yes. Uh, and, and in doing so, um, you know, was working primarily with Russia to... Uh, continue an agreement to reduce oil production so that they could, you know, so prices could rise, so that they both would do better economically with their respective budgets. Um, you know, Russia is leveraging the same uh, gas markets with Iran and Qatar as it's been leveraging oil with the Saudis. And, and so this provides a, you know, a relatively predictable platform So I guess what I should say is when you look at the prospects for, you know, political turmoil and so on, it's also good to have a parallel look at what's happening on the energy side just mm. to see is this really impacted and how serious is it. So um, it, it, you, we do need to understand both, uh, both sectors. At the end of the day, it really sounds like a family feud, a very, very dangerous fam family feud. Um, but it, it, 
it may also sound like diplomacy and international pressure will will find a, a way to resolve this crisis. Yes, yes. No, I think I think uh, that that's what the desire I think of uh, everybody. But of course, there's always the prospects of unintended consequences. Right. Um, and and uh, but and we can't. This is a serious moment. It really is. Uh, that I think goes beyond just a family feud. It is about the, you know, the soul, the heart of the region. What will it be? And it, you know, it has, it is, it's very important in that regard. Now, the while the oil and energy sectors can bring a degree of stability in all of this, and I think they will, that ultimately give us comfort at the end of the day, as you suggested. Um, the other big outlier, of course, is if um, the Fossil fuels uh, continue to be challenged by renewable energies and so forth. Uh, this sector or the energy sector as a stabilising element uh, could also be under challenge moving forward, if that makes sense. Um, thank you Good. so much, Peter. This is really wonderful. Okay. Um, I really hope our listeners enjoyed this as much as I did. <laughs>